today on The Open Word with Pastor David Landry. Open our hearts, change us from within by the open word. Give us ears to hear your truth and eyes to see the needs around us as we draw. If you, in your mortal mind, can wrap your mind around all that is God, then you know what you've done? You've just created a God in your own image. You've created a much smaller God of the truth and the reality of who God is. There's going to be plenty of times that God is going to move and work or declare something, even in His Word, that you and I aren't going to be able to comprehend. Why? Because He's God and you ain't, okay? Again, bad English, but good theology. Maybe they dilute it because they don't want to live up to it faithfully. You see, that's one of the difficulties of preaching the word without compromise. God is mysterious. His thoughts are not our thoughts, and his ways are not our ways. In today's message, Pastor David points out that if we think we understand how the Lord works, then we have essentially created a God in our own image. Furthermore, if we think we know better than God, or worse still, if we stand in judgment against the Lord, we're deceived. The truth is, we cannot comprehend the wonder and majesty of Jesus, and His ways are perfect. So when we don't understand, we can trust in the Lord's goodness. Now here's Pastor David with part two of his message, How Firm a Foundation, from the book of 2 Peter. talks about this temporary dwelling place called the body. He uses the description, this tent or my tent. I've shared the, this carcass, this carcass that we carry around with us on a continual basis. We're going to shed this thing eventually. We're going to do away with it. That's the idea and the thought of what Peter is saying here on this tent. But there's another idea of a tent. Who wants to live in a tent forever? Amen. You know, some of you guys like going out camping and, and, and you like going and taking a tent and throwing it up and going camping out in the wild. I like going camping too, like to a Ramada Inn or to a Comfort Inn. You know, I'm willing to rough it. Uh, I'm not too big into tents anymore, okay? Why? Because they're temporary. And that's what Peter is saying, that this tent that I'm carrying. These are the words of a pilgrim. These are the words of someone who knows that this body of sin, this body of destruction, this body of death, this body of flesh is going to be done away with. It's got to be put off. It's not eternal. And I've got good news for all of us. That body that you're carrying around that ached so much this morning when you got up, that body that needs to be taken care of on a continual daily basis, we're not taking this thing with us. Okay, We're not taking this thing with us. It's going to be dissolved. It's going to be done away with. It's going to be a new body that we have in glory. Amen? Amen. Amen. So all that money you spent on the knee replacements, the hip surgeries, uh, the dental stuff, the, the cosmetic things, all that, all that money, it's to no avail. It's, it's going to be gone pretty quick. Peter somehow knew that his time was pretty short, and we don't know for sure how he knew this. Rather, at this point in time, uh, the, the reality of his execution had already been made known to him. He says that the Lord Jesus revealed these things to him. 
one of the things we do know that his time was short. Two years after he wrote Second Peter, he was executed. And again, he was executed by crucifixion. And as we shared earlier on in this study, uh, when they went to crucify him, he says, I'm not worthy to be executed in the same manner as my Lord was. And so they said, okay, that's fine. So they turned him upside down, crucified him upside down. But as he left the earth, he wanted to make certain that there was a reminder for the church, even after his death, and that's why it was so important for him to write this letter. And, and, and again, the importance of the words that are written here for us. Peter explained to them what they had followed. And he explained to them what he had written to them, that it was truth. And he tells the church there in verse 16, he says, We didn't follow cunningly deceived fables when we made known to you the power and the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For he received from God the Father honor and glory when such a voice came to him from the excellent glory. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And we heard this voice which came from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. And you remember that story, the Mount of Transfiguration. Jesus had been ministering to the people and he took with him then Peter, the writer here, James and John, and they went up on the mountaintop. Peter, James, and John, they got tired and they went to sleep and while they slept, The Lord then, again, the very glory of the Lord came upon that mountaintop. Jesus himself, man, the very glory of his essence, the the, the Shekinah glory of God shining all around. They there met with Elijah and with Moses, and then the disciples woke up, saw all this happening. They thought, wow, this is awesome. And you remember it was Peter, our boy Peter, who didn't know what to say, so he said something, and quite often that gets a lot of us in trouble, okay? He says, Lord, this is great. This is marvelous. We ought to build three tabernacles here. One for you, one for Elijah, one for Moses. And what happened? Suddenly a big cloud came on the scene and a voice from heaven came out and says, this is my beloved son. Hear him. And then all that was left standing was Jesus. That's what, that's what Peter is writing about here. He says, man, we were eyewitnesses of that very thing. Even the apostle John who was with him on that day, John writes in his epistle in 1 John verse 1, he says, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our own eyes, which we've looked upon and our hands have handled concerning the word of life. The life was manifested and we have seen it. We bear witness and declare to you that eternal life, which was with the Father and was manifested to us, that which we have seen, which we have heard, we declare to you, eyewitnesses of the glory of Christ. That's what Peter is saying. This isn't just some cunningly devised fable. This isn't something we've made up here. No, we were there, and that's what we're writing about. That's what we're declaring to you. So John and Peter both are saying, hey, you know what? We were there. We heard him. We saw him. We touched him with our own hands. And you can believe it or not, but we know, and this is the truth of God, because we saw him firsthand. 
You know what? From the very beginning, though, the Word of God has been under attack by the enemies of God, by those that are hostile to the gospel message. Even from those who claim, unfortunately, who claim to be believers that are trying to dilute the Word of God every chance that they get. And it absolutely amazes me when I read articles or I hear the teaching of someone that so dilutes the impact of the Word of God. And why do they do it? Maybe it's because they don't fully understand it. I don't know. Maybe because they can't explain it completely. And unless they can put it into a form and a fashion that they can wrap their own minds around then it can't be true. But beloved, if you, in your mortal mind, can wrap your mind around all that is God, then you know what you've done? You've just created a God in your own image. You've created a much smaller God of the truth and the reality of who God is. There's going to be plenty of times that God is going to move and work or declare something even in his word that you and I aren't going to be able to comprehend. Why? Because he's God and you ain't, okay? Again, bad English, but good theology. Maybe they dilute it because they don't want to live up to it faithfully. You see, that's one of the difficulties of preaching the word without compromise is that the preacher has to hear it long before you do. And he gets nailed with it long before you do. And his toes get stepped on long before your toes get stepped on. But you see, many, unfortunately, are diluting the word. So many people claim that the Bible that you have in your hands this morning is filled with fairy tales, with stories, with wild imagination of religious zealots. And yet, how can they really and truly stand against all the proven history, the fact of firsthand witnesses, the stories that have, that have been corroborated even by hostile witnesses, to speak that this word really is true? Satan has tried every way possible to discredit the word of God, or at the very best, to, to, to regulate it to some nice religious book. Put it on the shelves, in the library, under religion. It's just another religious book. But beloved, there is power and there is authority in this book that sets it so far away and so far apart from every other work of man. Problem is, you and I as believers, we need to know the facts. We need to understand and grow in the firmness of our foundation within the Word of God. Let me ask you, does your faith stand on a firm foundation or on myths and legends and old wives' tales? You need to know that if you believe that the Bible is true and that it can be depended upon in every situation, then you yourself, you're standing on the most solid foundation that's available. When Peter declared in verse 16 that we didn't follow cunningly devised fables when we made known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, you and I need to understand that the power and the authority and the validity of this book is unquestionable. Even in the first century, they were trying to discredit the word of God. They were trying to discredit the voice of prophecy. They were trying to discredit the message 
of the apostles. Down through the years, they've tried to burn it, they've tried to destroy it, they've tried to poke holes in it. And yet it still stands without any solid claims that they can hold against it. The attack continues strongly even today, and yet it still stands strong. I want to take a moment, and I want to help you build this foundation of the truth of God's Word. In your hands, you hold a book that's actually a collection of 66 different books, letters, and historical records. Together, they were written over a period of 1,500 years by at least 40 different authors. Different authors from three different continents, from Africa to Asia to Europe, written in three different languages, Hebrew, Greek, and Aramaic. And all through these things, you see the blending together of a marvelous, a wonderful story, a declaration from Genesis all the way to the book of Revelation. These men were from every walk of life. They were kings and they were paupers. They were priests and they were prophets. They were shepherds and they were doctors. They were uneducated and they were well-educated. I believe that it's so consistent with the acceptable testimony that I believe that any court system would receive it because they're not word-for-word comparisons. What it is, it's the testimony, it's the eyewitness of several witnesses that come together relating the same story from different words. It's not that they all got together. Well, was his shirt red or green? Well, I believe it was red. Okay, so let's say that it's red. Were there five of them or four of them? Well, I believe there are four. Okay, then let's make it four. No, there, there are some differences even within it. But you know what? That validates the reality of the truth of the witnesses that are there. Compare, for instance, the records of First and Second Kings with the records of First and Second Chronicles. Same stories, same peoples, but different in many ways. Why would there be differences? Because First and Second Kings are written in more of a secular or a political direction, whereas First and Second Chronicles are written in more of a spiritual or a religious direction. Different writers from different viewpoints speaking of the same events. Are there differences? Yes, there are, but not differences that, 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 that affect any kind of doctrine or, or major emphasis. You can look at the four gospel records, great similarities, but again, some differences. Written by four different men at four different times. Two of them who had walked with Jesus for three and a half years, two of them who later became believers and took the testimony of some of the other apostles as well as eyewitnesses of the time, wrote these four accounts. And again, because of the similarity of these accounts... And yet, at the same time, the differences, it again shows that this isn't a made-up story, that this is the reality and this is the truth of eyewitness accounts. Compare the experiences of individuals as they either through visions or through actual physical presence, they stood before the throne room of God. Their stories so similar, Isaiah and Ezekiel and Daniel and even John in the book of Revelation, as well as the account of the transfiguration of Christ, speaking very similar accounts, but different men who had experienced this thing in different times. 
and yet so many of the descriptions flow right along with each other. Some differences, yes, because it's different men speaking about the same event. Of all of the ancient manuscripts that are available, the Bible above all of them has more complete documents closest to the time of what is called the original autographs. The original autographs means the ones who actually wrote it. Now, we don't have the original writings of anything within the Bible. What we do is we have copies of copies of copies. Now, when we look at the vast amount of the copies of the manuscripts that we have of, say, the New Testament alone, we have over 25,000 copies that are within 25 years of the original writings. So 25 years ago, the original writing was there. They made a copy, and they sent it to this church. They made a copy, they sent it to this church. They made a copy, sent it to this church. Long ago, the original was gone, but now we still have these copies of copies within 25 years, and we've got 25,000 of them. You might think, well, that still is kind of stretching it. Of all the ancient documents that we have, the ancient books that we have, the closest to come in comparison is Homer's Iliad. Nobody doubts that Homer wrote the Iliad. I mean, hey, certainly you wouldn't doubt that. The copies that we have of Homer's Iliad, there are 643 copies at the closest date of over 500 years from the time that Homer wrote it. And we only have 643 copies that close. And yet no one doubts that Homer wrote the Iliad. But yet they continue to try and doubt the fact that your Bible is true or not. The manuscripts, that close to the original, within 25 years, beloved, that's less than a generation. And within that time, if there was, again, falseness that was there, if there was uh, exaggerations on it, the people that were there, the eyewitnesses, would have, again, refuted it at that point in time. They would have uh, known that they were deviating from the facts, and there would have been, again, proof against those. But that's not the case. It remains true. Another thing you need to know, and you may be familiar with, back in 1940s, a young shepherd boy in Israel as he was watching over his sheep, one of the sheep got loose and ran into a cave and he threw a rock into that cave to try and drive the sheep out. And he heard something break inside that cave. When he went in to investigate, he, find, he found all these pots there. And inside many of these pots were scrolls of ancient documents. It's where we found the Dead Sea Scrolls. Not only were there scripture that were found in there, but there were also a lot of secular writing. Some of those that were dated in writing over 2,000 years ago, before the time of Christ, that were just found in the 1940s. Absolutely amazing. Both skeptic as well as those that were for the Bible were excited about this find because the skeptic thought, wow, great. Now we can prove that the Bible has been changed, it's been perverted, it's been twisted uh, uh, through the years. It cannot be the same. In those scrolls, they found nearly all of the Jewish Old Testament, portions and parts of all of the books of the Old Testament, except the book of Esther. One of the books that they found the most of was the book of Isaiah, of all books. And they found the complete scroll of Isaiah. 
So they were able to take that out and linguistics were able to go and look at that and compare it to today's version and look at that and compare it to today's version. And you know what they found? 95% accuracy from what was written 2,000 years ago to what we have today as our word. Beloved, that's, that's uncomparable in any other kind of literature. Oh, and by the way, that 5% that was wrong. That was either copyist errors. There were accent marks at different places. There were words that were flipped back and forth. Again, none of it, any kind of doctrinal, any kind of major issue, all just solid, solid proof of God being able to hold his word true and maintain the veracity, the faithfulness of it all through these years. As far as hostile witnesses are concerned, Some of you may have heard of a man by the name of Flavius Josephus. Flavius Josephus was a Jewish historian, but he had, again, uh, he had defected from the Jews and he'd become actually a Roman citizen. And as he's writing the history of the first century, Josephus gives us a lot of insight into the world of that day. It's interesting how much more we're willing to believe Josephus from the first century than we are from the Bible, but that's a whole other issue. In Josephus' writing, he's neither a friend of the Jew nor of the Christian, and one of his most famous and enduring works is The Antiquity of the Jews. In his writing, he not only preserves the traditions of that time, but also speaks of a lot of things that were going on during that first century. In Josephus' writing, he speaks about the existence of a man called John the Baptist, And he also mentions that Herod had him imprisoned and put him to death. Josephus also mentions a man by the name of James, who was the brother of Jesus, along with the fact that James was put to death by the high priest of the time. And a little bit later in the same book, in the Antiquities of the Jews, Josephus mentions Jesus himself. He characterizes him as a wise man. And then he further reports that the people viewed Jesus as the Christ, though Josephus wasn't claiming him as Christ or Messiah. He says the people believed him to be the Christ and that Jesus appeared to his disciples three days after Pilate had put him to death. That's on the record of Josephus, a secular writing, a hostile witness to the truth of God's word. Another hostile witness to the validity of the New Testament, uh, again, is, is included in other documents. The Jewish Talmud, again, not a Christian writing, but the Jewish Talmud, actually mentions Jesus, and it records his death on the eve of Passover. Thales was a Samaritan historian. He wrote around 52 AD, and he mentions the crucifixion of Jesus, as did another Roman historian, Phlegon. The internal evidence of the prophecy within our word. Again, more than enough for any reasoning man, for someone without prejudice against the word of God, someone that would just clearly come and look at what the Old Testament said and what was fulfilled in the New Testament any reasoning man would be able to believe that it's the truth and that there is reliability within the Bible. Open our hearts, change us from within by the open word. 
are so glad we were able to spend time with you today on The Open Word. We hope the message you heard has been encouraging and maybe even given you an incentive to dig a little deeper into the book of 2 Peter for yourself. Did you know that you don't have to wait to hear more teachings from The Open Word? Just visit our website, theopenword.com. We have a number of messages available there to listen to right now or download to hear at your convenience. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast on iTunes so you'll never miss a teaching. You're an important part of the ministry here at The Open Word. If you've felt a prompting to become more involved in this great ministry, listen up. Pastor David has a special message just for you. You know, I love being able to share the Word of God with you through this radio ministry. Radio programs like The Open Word are wonderful tools that God uses to advance His kingdom here on earth. But as with any ministry, there are expenses. I know God is blessing His children through The Open Word. And God has given us a vision to see this ministry expand and reach even further. Would you prayerfully consider financially supporting The Open Word? Log on to theopenword.com and simply click on the support option to help us continue to grow. Your gift, large or small, is greatly appreciated for the kingdom of God. Thanks, Pastor David. That's all we have time for today. Pastor David will continue teaching through 2 Peter when you join us next time on The Open Word. Small